welcome to Accelerated. I'm your host, Vitaly Golem. On this second season of the podcast, we are hearing from some of the global leaders in everything electric and autonomous, moving us quickly into the future. On this episode, we speak with Vlad Voroninsky, co-founder and CEO of Helm.ai, the android of autonomous vehicles. Vlad is an applied mathematician, an AI researcher, and entrepreneur with many years of R&D experience and algorithmic development. His PhD thesis in mathematics at UC Berkeley made fundamental contributions to phase retrieval and quantum tomography, for which he was awarded the Bernard Friedman Memorial Prize in 2013 and the SIAM Outstanding Paper Prize in 2014. Previously, he was a postdoc fellow at MIT and a PhD and postdoc at UC Berkeley. Vlad served as a chief scientist at SIFT Security, acquired by Netscope, before co-founding Helm.ai. We got into some really fascinating topics around autonomous vehicles. Here's our conversation with Vlad. Vlad, thank you very much for being on Accelerated. Um, it's a pleasure to have you, a real expert on artificial intelligence and the autonomous world, a very hot topic. Um, so we'll dive right in. So before, before you became an entrepreneur, you were an academic. What inspired you to get into research and how did you make the transition to business? Um, yeah, absolutely. And uh, thanks for having me, Vitaly. Um, so interestingly enough, uh, my earliest research passion was actually uh, autonomous driving. So I was already leading in a scientific direction in early undergrad, but I was mostly absorbing a lot of different fields. Um, started out as a cybernetics major, which is essentially the application of control theory to biology in a fairly broad sense. And uh, you know, I was walking down the hall one day and saw a flyer for the UCLA Vision Lab, which was uh, run by my undergrad advisor, Stefano Sawato, um, and you know, talked about autonomous vehicles as an application of cybernetics. And I just thought it was the coolest thing, uh, you know, automating machine to be able to perform a pretty complex task like driving. So you know, I uh, emailed Stefano that same day and uh, ended up enrolling in a grad course he was teaching in computer vision. You know, I was uh, completely unprepared for uh, that grad course, but, uh, you know, didn't have the basic background for it, but somehow got through it and ended up uh, joining the UCLA Vision Lab, which was at the time um, participating in the DARPA Grand Challenges. Um, learned quite a lot there, and, you know, the most interesting part was actually the role of uh, applied mathematics and computer vision AI. Um, that seemed like the real bottleneck, and so I actually ended up um, switching my major to math in my last year of undergrad. and kind of went super deep into that and saw it, saw it have a really big impact on uh, my ability to do research in computer vision. Um, and, you know, at that point, I kind of discovered I had a natural talent um, for math and kind of got hooked and kept saying to myself, okay, I'll, uh, you know, do math for a couple more years and then come back to computer vision. Uh, but I ended up uh, going much further into the math world than I uh, expected and even kind of considered uh, seriously being a mathematician. Um, but ultimately, I knew that what I really wanted to do was, you know, start a company and really build something that works in the real world. Um, and so as far as transitioning to business, um, I mean, I kind of knew I wanted to start a company since I was about 20 years old and kept thinking I would drop out of school at some point to do that. Uh, it just kind of took a lot longer than expected. Um, and in fact, I really wanted to work on self-driving cars, but it was too early for that uh, for, for many years. Um, kind of always had a thought process running in the background about, you know, various business models, um, you know, not, ne not necessarily related to that. Like at some point got really excited about things like mutually assured contracts like Kickstarter. And it was fun to observe from the side how those things panned out. And, you know, the various technologies that always uh, was looking for an angle to turn them into products, um, kind of dabbled in various startup ideas for a few years. 
um, often, often involving computer vision applications, but my academic career had taken on a life of its own, and you know, those initial startup ideas weren't uh, quite compelling enough. So, you know, eventually during my postdoc, I finally made the leap with a company called SIFT uh, Security, where I was co-founding chief scientist. And uh, you know, SIFT focused on cybersecurity for the cloud, and I built out their ML pipeline. Um, so that was a very uh, you know formative experience, and kind of seeing like nothing become something, and certainly informed me quite a bit about starting Helm AI. Now, for for uh, for our audience, I mean, it seems like a lot of the um, the autonomous projects and a lot of the autonomous teams go way back to those DARPA challenges. Can you talk for a minute about what those DARPA challenges were and and how that worked? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the DARPA grant challenges essentially were uh, you know a, a competition sponsored by the government to deploy autonomous cars um, in fairly controlled environments. Um, at least that's how it started out, where essentially the teams had quite a lot of information about what the eventual task was. Um, and so there was a kind of a lot of um, effort leading up to that one event. Um, and, you know, it, what's interesting about it is that I think, you know, uh, you know, we have to give it credit for really giving rise to, like, the interest in self-driving cars. Um, and almost like, you know, giving birth to that industry. Uh, but in a lot of ways, I think that it was potentially actually detrimental um, to the evolution of the space because, you know, essentially, you know, autonomous driving is actually like the opposite of that, right? It's the opposite of knowing exactly what you're up against on one particular day, um, right? And, and the thing is, you know, computer vision technology uh, was actually very, very uh, raw at that point. Like, it actually barely played a role in the Dark Grand Challenges. It was primarily, like, LiDAR-driven, and the winning teams had quite a lot of LiDAR um, uh, technology on their on their stacks. And I think in a lot of ways it was more about, you know, actuation and sensor calibration, getting all those things to work as opposed to the actual AI technology deployed. And so, you know, I think that, you know, the, the teams that kind of became anointed as kind of the experts in the space, um, you know, surely, you know, we must give them credit um, for that. But, you know, I think that the AI component was almost entirely missing um, at that stage. Um, but I think it, you know, gave a lot of excitement to self-driving cars and um, did eventually kind of like end up where we are today. But, but I think it's really important to point out the fact that, um, the thing that's the core bottleneck today um, really was entirely unaddressed by DARPA Grand Challenges, but nevertheless was like a very, uh, you know, informative uh, kind of competition that really kind of gave rise to the space. Yeah, I know a number of uh, other teams that are working in autonomy all came through that pipeline, but uh, it's interesting, interesting thought that yeah, it was all kind of obstacle avoidance uh, rather than uh, looking at those kind of edge cases, which are now the issue that all the autonomous companies are trying to deal with. So let's talk about uh, Helm.ai. Can you t uh, give us a quick history on the company and what your mission is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so essentially, you know, um, at the end of my postdoc at MIT, you know, I was kind of interviewing for professorships in academia, um, you know, really entertaining that route, but it became clear to me that I didn't really want to do that, and I think it was clear to the people I was interviewing with as well. Um, you know, at the same time, like, the thing that was really notable about around that time, you know, 2015, 2016, was that becoming very clear that deep learning was going to be a key technology within AI, and, you know, I was really impressed with the potential 
of it. And I already knew at that point I wanted to dedicate my career to AI, just a matter of kind of figuring out exactly what to do. So, you know, I was working on a, on a number of computer vision projects at the time, um, and they were kind of becoming increasingly more applied. And, uh, you know, what really stood out to me was that uh, there was kind of fundamental perception problem for robotics that needed to be addressed for kind of the transition of AI from being a purely digital uh, thing to something that interacts with physical environments. Um, so I got very, you know, compelled by that problem. And, you know, in parallel, I was, you know, already anticipating that I would start a company. You know, I'd been looking for a co-founder and through some connections at MIT, met my co-founder and CTO of Helm AI, Tudor Akeem. And, you know, it's just like really one of the brightest people I've met in Silicon Valley. And, you know, he was, you know, really, really good at software and AI and also able to, you know, absorb, you know, really difficult math papers that I sent to him. And we were just kind of geek out about various AI topics. And, um, you know, the kind of self-driving space was kind of at a fever pitch in 2016. Um, and so it was very clear that there was an opportunity to build a lot of value, right? You know, in particular, like when Cruise got acquired by GM, that was like pretty striking. Um, you know, I had a pretty good sense of kind of what they had at the time and, you know, was very confident we can do a lot better than that with a different approach. Um, so, you know, decided to pull the trigger and um, teamed up with Tudor um, to co-found Helm and, you know, he dropped out of Stanford to, to join me uh, within a couple of weeks after I started talking about it. And, um, you know, we spent a, a couple of months uh, building the initial prototypes and uh, once those came to fruition, kind of formally started the company and, and raised funding. And, um, you know, the mission of Helm is really, um, we're an AI software automation company. Um, you know, we're focusing on self-driving cars, but really the, the, the vision is about robotics at large. Um, so over the next, you know, five to 10 years, we're going to see a number of industries mature where AI really will start to automate physical things. And, you know, we want to play a role in, in all those various industries. And there are obviously a number of companies um, attacking different, different angles and different approaches on autonomy. What's novel about uh, Helm's approach? Um, so, you know, to first kind of like uh, discuss what are the things you actually need to get to full autonomy, right? So I think you need three things. You need um, highly scalable AI technology. Um, you also need the ability to do large-scale validation. And you also need, uh, you know, a source of capital that isn't just at the whim of kind of public or private markets due to the, some level of uncertainty in the kind of rollout timelines and regulation. And, you know, our approach is really to kind of differentiate it along all, all three of those dimensions. So, you know, first on the technology side, um, you know, it was very clear to us from the beginning, um, you know, back in 2016, that traditional deep learning just would never achieve fully self-driving cars. Um, and, um, you know, essentially to solve autonomous driving, you basically need to solve computer vision. Um, it's not enough to simply rely on other sensors like radar or LIDAR to address the most difficult corner cases. And computer vision is a very hard problem, right? So, you know, 70% of your brain is fully dedicated to vision at any given point in time. And, you know, your brain's been optimized through quite a lot of evolution, right? And, you know, traditional deep learning uh, relies on providing examples of the task being performed. So if you want to really understand a given image, you need to understand every single pixel as well as the depth you know, uh, at every single pixel. And it's just incredibly expensive to generate that kind of data for computer vision tasks. And if you want to get to human level accuracy with that, it might be required for you to train maybe you know, trillions of images. Um, so you know, 
meanwhile annotation can cost a few dollars per image, right? So just a very simple napkin calculation can tell you that traditional deep learning will never solve self-driving cars, right? And so in 2016, that's kind of all that was really available. Um, and so we knew that we needed to do a lot better than that to, uh, you know, to achieve a winning position in the space. And so that's why we focused so much on unsupervised learning and um, invented a technology we call deep teaching, which leverages um, you know, insights from cutting-edge applied mathematics and compressive sensing to replace the need for annotation with um, certain mathematical modeling techniques. And you know, once, once these kinds of pipelines are in place, they just don't require any annotation, which makes them arbitrarily scalable. So the cost of computation you know, is orders of magnitude cheaper than annotation. So essentially, um, we're able to get to whatever level of accuracy that we want on a much more uh, capital efficient uh, route. And you know, unsupervised learning is a you know very hard problem, right? It's much easier said than done. And you know, I think we've innovated in that area more than any other company in the space. It's really kind of our secret weapon where all of our technology advantages come from. And um, there are two other aspects uh, that are that are important. Um, you know, basically, there's large scale validation, right? And there's this kind of having a good source of capital, right? So. Importantly, we go after um, high-end ADAS, so we essentially license our software for volume production programs, for uh, L2 plus systems and above. And you know what that gets us is access to large-scale fleets um, without putting up the capital for actually deploying those cars, right? Which could be potentially millions of cars. And this is very important because um, you know this is in contrast to kind of the, the straight to L4 approaches which uh, try to solve kind of a tiny sliver of the problem at any given cost. Um, and, um, you know, that only gets you so far, right? I mean, driving in Phoenix, Arizona is, uh, you know, potentially 100 times easier than driving in San Francisco. So solving, even if you solve Phoenix, Arizona, doesn't really mean much. And, um, you know, scaling, uh, scaling a fleet uh, to be big enough to actually validate L4, you might need to get to maybe millions of cars and nobody has the capital to uh, you know, to be able to do that without tying into a business model like selling cars, um, and so that's why we think that you know going after uh, partial autonomy first and tackling the scale part of the problem first is of paramount importance um, because it gives us access to much larger scales of validation. Um, and you know, lastly, um, essentially, you know, by going after um, the high-end ADAS market, we go after you know an existing market, so we can actually generate revenue today and build an independent business that allows us to kind of reinvest um, the revenues from that into L4 R&D. It's kind of a natural path toward getting to full autonomy, um, kind of a product evolution towards solving a really hard problem. And you know, I can see why it might be attractive to others to think like, hey, let's just do this all ourselves and you know, build up our own fleet and be in full control of our destiny. But the reality is that what you end up with is kind of being in full control of a science project and you don't actually have enough capital for it to become a business that way. So it's interesting. Let me summarize. I think you, you, you're talking about building kind of a Trojan horse of uh, where, on the one hand, you're giving the big automakers what they want and can't develop in-house, which is very advanced uh, assistive driving systems. Uh, that's maybe level 2.9, uh, 
in, in autonomy speak. And um, that gives you the, the volume of data that you're collecting to then eventually roll out level four, level five true autonomy. So it's quite interesting uh, where other companies are really trying to deploy their own fleets and get that data on their own. You're able to uh, to get that get there in a different path, um, and that that's that's worth recognizing because that that's quite unique. I'm really excited to share something a long time in the making with you. My first online course. Over the years, I've trained thousands of founders through my book, Accelerated Startup, and my infamous Pitching Like a Boss workshops and keynotes. Like I've done for thousands of founders, I will teach you how to pitch like a boss. And for the first time ever, I will be doing it in a cohort-based online course. This is the world's most comprehensive and intensive course for entrepreneurs and future founders on pitching. It will help you craft the perfect pitch for investors and customers. It will also help you master public speaking. Get funded, communicate your vision to grow your team and dramatically improve sales of any product. Check out golem.net slash pitching. That's G-O-L-O-M-B dot slash pitching for more information. See you there. Now, um, you know, there are a lot of breakthroughs. Like every big breakthrough, there's uh, or big change in technology. People tend to wildly underestimate how long that rollout or that takeoff period is going to take for that uh, to use AI nomenclature, the takeoff period to get uh, to get to to what you know the promise is, and we've been promised for many years now. Uh, that full autonomy is just around the corner. And we know that uh, we've been disappointed by, by some of these statements. What are your thoughts? How long do you think it will really take us to get to level four or five autonomy? Level four being, most cases, level five being no steering controls whatsoever. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, I mean, and just, just to kind of note, right, in terms of making these projections, right, you know, back in 2016, you know, I think there were a lot of claims about getting to full autonomy by 2018 or 2020. And, you know, I was extremely skeptical of those claims um, on a purely technological basis. Um, but I do think things are looking different now. Um, and so essentially, you know, but I think it depends quite a lot on the approach, right, which just kind of goes back to emphasize the, the previous point. You know, I think that, um, you know, at least for, for Helmi I, let's say, you know, I think technologically, um, with enough capital, which, you know, primarily would be dedicated to, you know, offline compute and uh, to some degree validation, um, an approach like deep teaching can achieve L4 readiness within a few years. You know, so we have the ability to get arbitrary accuracy for any given computer vision problem. Um, and there are various other innovations that make it possible to be robust to, you know, out of distribution corner cases. Um, you know, the main bottleneck um, on the inference side is like just the compute budget, you know, because the DNNs have to become a lot bigger to enable human level accuracy. But compute platforms are getting very powerful, and so, you know, they'll get there in a few years. Um, but, you know, once the technology is built, it does need to be uh, significantly validated to actually roll it out. Um, and that's where I think uh, these large scale consumer fleets will be critical. Um, since one can get an actual kind of strong statistical sense of the level of safety without, you know, putting up the capital to have a bunch of, you know, uh, say like robo taxis rolling, ar rolling around San Francisco. Um, so, you know, I think that, um, yeah, I think in a few years, technologically speaking, L4 is like definitely possible, but I think validating it and, you know, having it pass regulations 
is kind of a really important part of the equation as well. And so, you know, kind of way I think about it is that um, there are a lot of approaches out there that are kind of these, you know, straight tail for LiDAR-centric approaches that are still kind of predominant. And, you know, I just don't know if they'll get there at all um, because computer vision is really at the heart of autonomous driving. Um, and that's really the thing that's, you know, preventing, preventing from the technology from fully working yet. Um, you know, that being said, of course, uh, not to say that LiDAR is not an important sensor. Like, it is important, but it's not the key enabler of all four, but more of a redundancy mechanism, right? I mean, for example, you know, within a few years, if you have enough, com you know, real-time compute and, you know, be able to run these very deep nets and if you have a few cameras, you'll be able to get highly accurate depth measurements just like LiDAR, um, except you'll have actually better resolution and better range. So for depth prediction, um, it'll be more of a cost question. You know, for a given resolution and range, is it cheaper to buy a bunch of lidars or to just you know use a lot of compute on, and a bunch of cameras? Um, but for uh, other aspects of the problem, like semantic understanding, that'll still be primarily computer vision based. Um, and uh, you know, again, going straight for L4 might not really even pan out because you just can't get sufficient scale to really validate that what you're doing is, is safe enough. So, you know, assuming the approach um, leverages kind of these like large scale, um, you know, consumer fleets, I think that in a few years, L4 is certainly possible. That's great. No, that's great to hear. That's a relief that uh, we'll, we're actually getting there. Um, now, when we do get there, what do you think will be the first vehicles, um, you know, on the road, off-road? Where do you think we're going to see f true autonomy first? You know, I, I guess I'd like to maybe define true autonomy, um, if I may. Uh, you know, I, I think that um, whenever we talk about autonomous cars, I think it's important, or vehicles, it's important to bake into the definition that they are deployed at scale that they are cost effective, right? Because if that isn't the case, um, it's really unclear if that's really relevant, um, right? I mean, if, if it's just a matter of making a few vehicles fully autonomous and releasing them into a highly controlled environment, you know, that's dramatically easier than launching at scale, right? Because, you know, even from like a liability perspective, um, you know, and operational domain perspective, essentially, you know, Assuming that each vehicle, let's say, has the same level of risk, um, your overall liability risk scales with the size of the fleet, right? So you can play a game of probabilities to launch something that's self-driving, um, but at a small scale, and it, its risk profile might be okay at that scale, but that fleet might not be safe enough to actually deploy, you know, worldwide, let's say, right? And, you know, also, if it's not actually cost-effective, it also doesn't really make sense to deploy at scale. I mean, it's going to be highly unprofitable. Um, so I think to answer the kind of, like, what I think is a more important question of when will we see, you know, self-driving vehicles at scale in a cost-effective manner, I think we'll first see them as, you know, L4-capable L2 systems, um, potentially on consumer highway pilot system, you know, products, right? So consumer fleets, um, you know, with kind of highly advanced um, ADAS on them. And so, you know, technologically, it should be possible within a few years to have these kinds of vehicles that are out there that are safer than a human driver. You know, it doesn't mean that people will be able to kind of sleep in the back seat right away, right? They'll still have to be kind of operating the vehicle just to make sure uh, to be able to take over. But that's really more of a validation step, right? I mean, the, so the dis distinction between L2 and L4 is really that of liability, right? So you can have something that's actually in effect safer than a human driver, but because it hasn't yet been validated and because, you know, maybe the um, OEM doesn't want to take full liability yet, it's still characterized as an L2 system. but.
you know, eventually after you see um, enough miles, you, you can get confidence that it's actually safer than a human driver. Um, and so if you take, you know, so I think that that's where we'll see maybe the first real L4 systems. And then, you know, taking the lessons and validation from those types of at volume consumer fleets, it'll be possible to launch, you know, highway trucking solutions, urban delivery, L4 solutions. And, you know, urban robotaxi might be the last one to get solved just because it's kind of a more complex environment with, you know, relatively high speeds and it has kind of a more fussy cargo, right, a human. So, but yeah, that's that's the kind of roadmap um, that I envision. Well, yeah, I mean that, that's that's very insightful. Um, let me combine you know a couple of questions that are that uh, that are always uh, kind of interesting here. Um, on the one hand, there's an argument that when we do have true passenger vehicle autonomy, uh, fewer people are going to be buying and owning vehicles because they are. Um, all they're looking for is, is to get a ride, and it may be cheaper than an Uber. You know that that whole equation changes, especially for people in uh, people in the city that live in the cities. Um, on the other hand, we tend to drive all about the same time. We drive in the morning to and from work. We drive in the in the late afternoon, you know, to and from work. Um, so that that's kind of a tricky one. So your your thoughts on personal uh, car ownership, and then also there's an ethics debate about uh, you know this this whole trolley problem always gets brought up you know if there's an automated uh, train uh, automated trolley that um, has to decide is it going to kill two pedestrians or one pedestrian how does it make that choice so car ownership and the trolley problem what are your thoughts sure that was a great questions um, yeah I mean I think that um, as far as like car ownership goes um, I think that um, let's say that we're living in a world where you can buy you know, a fully self-driving car, which in theory can be farmed out as a robo-taxi, I think kind of brings up the question of like, you know, is the value of that fact built into the vehicle price, right? Or is it something like, uh, you know, let's say, I know Volkswagen has talked about, you know, charging on an hourly basis for autonomous driving capability for consumer cars. You know, the question is, is that, is the reason for that to incentivize people to farm out their cars as robo-taxis? Right. And, and so, you know, what if the person, you know, buys the car, but then never actually uses that that feature. Right. Um, so I think it'll kind of depend. I mean, I think there will certainly always be a segment of the uh, population that will just like want their own car and not want to share it with others. So if they're buying an autonomous car, they're effectively, you know, buying a private AI driver, assuming they can afford it. Um, and another segment will be, you know, content potentially just uh, taking autonomous taxis everywhere kind of if the price is right, or maybe, you know, buying a car that's autonomous and kind of letting it do its thing while they're at work or something like that. Um, and, you know, we're certainly already seeing people kind of transition with respect to car ownership and, you know, to some extent, just like take Ubers and maybe forego buying a car. But, you know, there are other issues there, like, you know, how long do you have to wait for an Uber, right? So, I mean, it's it's nice to be driven around, but you have to if you have to wait 20 minutes to just to get the Uber, that can be kind of annoying. So it'll be a volume question of, how available uh, these these vehicles are on demand, and um, I think also it'll come down to how you know the OEMs decide to monetize the self-driving capability. Um, so yeah, I think it's kind of an open question, but interesting one for sure. And um, you know, regarding the trolley problem, like you know, is is it kind of a real problem? I think that yeah, sure, you know, it's a real problem, and you know, I think that it's as real for machines as it is for humans. Um, you know, humans have kind of a built-in moral compass. Um, but these things aren't objective, right? Hence why we have philosophical debates about it. Um, and so I think it'll be kind of up to us to encode machines with some notion of morality. 
Um, and, uh, you know, maybe even one day, perhaps once the machines are advanced enough, they can come up with an even better moral framework than humans have. But, you know, that's probably going to happen after we have self-driving cars. But, you know, from a practical perspective, I think um, it'll come down to a mix of kind of government regulation and liability law in terms of how issues like the trolley problem would be handled uh, by an autonomous vehicle. But from an AI perspective, you know, it's uh, th there's no issue essentially in, in toggling whatever kind of behavior you, you might want. It's really going to be, um, you know, a question that society will have to kind of deal with. with what, what do you want to imbue as far as the behavior goes for these autonomous cars? Yeah, so it's kind of a, a, a moot point uh, with this trolley problem. I guess the other the other uh, solution I heard the other day is that the trolley will just stop. It won't uh, it won't uh, have to kill one or two pedestrians. <laughs> well, that's 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 wishful thinking, right? That's not always going to be possible. The point of the trolley problem is that you only have two choices. So that's kind of a cop out. But sure. When companies start to catch fire and blitzscale and look for capital to fuel that growth or look to find the right exit strategy, they often seek the counsel of investment bankers. At Drake Star Partners, we work with some of the leading companies in global tech on capital raises, M&A, corporate carve-outs, SPACs, and much more. And we're pretty good at it. Our team of over 100 technology sector experts across nine offices in six countries is comprised of not only career bankers, but experienced executive venture investors and technologists. Drakestar Partners is the number one ranked and fastest growing mid-market investment bank across US and Europe. While I focus on mobility and energy transition sector, along with all things Silicon Valley, my partners from the Pacific to the Atlantic and around the world lead in software, media, communications, and everything in between. Learn more about us at drakestar.com. So, um, so speaking of liability, uh, you know, there's there's a very low tolerance for these early autonomous autonomous accidents, and as we get more autonomous vehicles or you know more uh, more autonomous in in nature, um, we'll have an, you know a temporary increase in accidents. And how do you think regulators and general public will react to, to this fact? And how do we get through this? Because ultimately, these vehicles will be safer, but there's got to be some period where there will be an increase in, in accidents. Well, to be honest with you, I actually don't know if, if I think that that's necessarily um, true, right? Like, I think that it's not an, an inevitability that there will be an increase in accidents. I mean, in a lot of ways, I think that if there is an increase in accidents, with a whole lot of self-driving cars and something is going wrong and perhaps it shouldn't be rolled out that way um you know self-driving cars are perfectly capable you know will eventually be perfectly capable of judging how you know their presence and their actions will impact the actions of human drivers you know they'll be in they'll in particular they'll be able to you know capable of mimic mimicking human driving behavior quite well such that you know if uh, you didn't, you know, as long as you can't tell that there's actually nobody in that car, you might just think it's another human driving, right? And in, in particular, you know, of course, the AIs will, uh, AI systems will want to em emulate just the good parts of, you know, human driving, right? Like not the lack of attention or the fatigue or the aggression aspects, but, you know, some highly attentive human driver, right? So, you know, I, 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 so I don't actually think that, um, yeah, I think that there, there would be something wrong with a rollout plan that increases accidents. Well, let me, let me clarify. What I mean is that right now there have been a handful of accidents um, related to autonomous vehicles. 
of different sorts, and there's been a lot of news coverage of each one of them. So as we roll out and we have hundreds, then thousands, then hundreds of thousands, even if the occurrence is very, very low percentage, a fraction of it, the, the tolerance of the general public towards autonomous vehicles uh, causing fatalities or accidents otherwise is probably three orders of magnitude lower than the tolerance that we built up to just knowing that there's human drivers that are not very good out there that are causing accidents. So what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so I think that we should decouple sort of um, sort of the statistical safety of self-driving cars versus you know media coverage and the optics around that and the public reaction. Those are different things. But I think that actually, as to your point, you know, this is another reason why I think that launching you know, these L2 systems at scale is such a good approach, because it essentially allows humans to become much more comfortable with the notion of a self-driving car, while the human still has the control to like turn it off as needed and still is ultimately responsible for what happens, right? So I, I think that, you know, that's actually, yeah, I think that it has a much better chance of working well you know, I think a human driver um, combined with a properly designed, you know, high-end ADAS system that has the ability to actually check if a human's paying attention, et cetera, um, those two things combined should be better than just either system alone and, uh, you know, should be safer even than a human driver, right? And so uh, while you're in that regime, you know, uh, the consumer kind of gets used to the notion of an AI system driving the car. Um, they also, you know, benefit from increased levels of safety. And the AI system benefits from kind of the large-scale validation that you get um, on these kind of like large-scale consumer fleets. And, you know, the thing is, the thing about these kinds of ADAS features, they're actually highly sticky. You know, if you, if you ever use them, like, you know, for example, I have like a, you know, a rear-facing camera for, you know, in my car and, um, you know, uh, having, you know, used it to kind of back out of parking lots and stuff like that. If I, get into a, if I get into a car that doesn't have it, I almost feel blind. I'm like, oh, my God, how did I used to do this? So I, I think that people, you know, most people will definitely kind of adopt the technology and get really comfortable with it. And provided that we can actually show at scale that it's safer than human driving, it shouldn't be an issue to kind of transition to that, you know, uh, in, in a bigger way. But, you know, I think that's the optimal path. I, mean, I think that the things that have occurred, you know, with various, uh, you know, I don't want to name any specifics, but... Yeah, I think there's been some pretty unfortunate stuff with the rollout of self-driving cars, and you know, frankly, I think it was irresponsible. Um, so, you know, I, I think that um, it, it should not be an inevitable fact that there's somehow going to be an increase in accidents as we roll out this, this technology. That's a very positive uh, approach. I, I like that. Yeah, and I think I think your solution is very sound as far as kind of gradually getting people used to it. It'll take some time, but uh, it's it's better measure twice and cut once, so to say. Um, what, what are the biggest misconceptions from your perspective about autonomy out there? Uh, okay, so yeah, where do I begin? Um, so I think there's a number of these. Um, you know, I'll, I'll name a few, you know. I mean, I think that um, maybe an easy one is kind of this never-ending debate about, you know, LiDAR versus vision. Um, I think that it shouldn't really be like that. It sounds kind of very adversarial. Um, but, you know, I think there's kind of like, you know, a lot of money at stake when it comes to the LiDAR industry, lots of vested interest. But, you know, I think that it is an important point, though, that, you know, LiDAR alone is not going to be the thing that really enables autonomous driving. You know, if I gave you kind of, a, you know, a 
you know, proof by example, or if it gave you like an augmented reality headset and projected a bunch of lighter point clouds into your visual field and, you know, blocked the rest of your vision and asked you to drive based on that, like you'd be pretty horrified, you know? It's 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 a uh, you know pretty it'd be very very difficult you know it's pretty rare for a human to not process pretty much exactly what's happening on the road right and it can be pretty frightening if you can't quite understand what's going on because it's so dangerous right and so imagine you know having to drive in a constant state of panic because you don't actually quite understand what's going on around you and that's pretty much what you would get if you were only using lidar and so and again you know I'm not against lidar at all I think it's a it's an amazing technology and um, can be a great source of redundancy for all four systems but it's just not sufficient on its own um, while computer vision technically could be right I mean humans drive based on vision alone and once we have more compute and you know better neural networks it'll definitely be possible so I think there's a there's there's a bit of misconception when it comes to that just because there's so much kind of vested interest in, in the various uh, marketing efforts um, I think another thing is a misconception is that it kind of seems to be the notion that uh, somehow this like self-driving race is like already like really, really mature. But I mean, I think the reality, you know, companies tend to get uh, judged by kind of like how much capital they've raised and, oh, okay, if some company has raised more money, they're automatically ahead. This is like quite false. Um, you know, we've, we've gone kind of toe-to-toe with some, you know, very highly capitalized companies and come, have come out ahead. Um, as far as our technology goes and you know, I think what really matters is kind of the scalability of your approach of your AI software of your validation strategy You know how many ac how much accuracy and how many features can you create per dollar? And you know the, the difference between traditional deep learning and supervised deep teaching is like literally orders of magnitude So, you know, it's a pretty cool thing kind of like and a, a good example is kind of like You know the human genome project right originally was just like a huge effort kind of very expensive just to kind of sequence one human genome whereas like now we can do it for several orders of magnitude cheaper and you know AI is like a very nascent space and there's some pretty surprising stuff you can do with it with the right approach so you know from where I sit this kind of like race to create the first fully autonomous vehicle is pretty much wide open you know despite um, quite a lot of capital that's already been deployed um, and you know there are kind of outstanding technical challenges and validation challenges that need to be addressed and they just can't simply be overpowered with capital on both accounts, right? You can't overpower deep learning simply with annotation, and you can't actually deploy enough capital to achieve sufficient scale, you know, of validation without a business model like selling cars, right? So the approach really matters a lot, and I think that that sometimes tends to get uh, kind of swept under the rug in certain conversations. That's very interesting. And, you know, your thoughts, when you, you mentioned that the original idea behind Helm is not just autonomous vehicles, but kind of applying the robotics problem uh, to autonomous vehicles. What are your thoughts on delivery drones, air taxis, things up in the air that uh, will be autonomous, but not quite on the road anymore? Um, yeah, definitely important areas. Um, you know, we've definitely looked a lot into the drone space, and you know, personally, I think it could be pretty pretty huge um, as a market. Um, we're actually already working with, um, you know, some drone companies and um, do believe that autonomous drones can become widespread um, in the coming years. And so there's some interesting aspects to drone delivery, like, you know, kind of the ability to, for example, get something delivered kind of very quickly, more quickly than potentially other methods. But there's also like other challenges like, you know, drones generating a lot of noise or, you know, kind of being a nuisance in certain urban environments. Those, those are kind of still like open questions. 
Um, and you know, one other interesting thing about drones is that it's, um, they kind of already, there's already autonomous drone fleets, right? But they're kind of regulation dependent and with the US being kind of more heavily regulated, and you know, I think where AI technology would play kind of a big role is not just increasing the level of safety for drone fleets, but also kind of giving drones the ability to kind of land or deliver into like more complex environments. And uh, it's definitely a problem that uh, starts to overlap a little bit, maybe with self-driving cars when you start to start dealing with these more urban areas. Um, and you know, things like air taxis, I think they're kind of like further out, um, but we're certainly keeping an eye on on those markets and you know overall I'm pretty bullish about you know aviation intersection of aviation AI um, for sure um, but there you know there are a number of emerging markets that are important to Helm AI you know uh, including aviation but also things like consumer robotics kind of construction mining and factory automation so we're kind of keeping a close eye on all these different markets and you know as they mature um, we'll definitely be playing a bigger role in those. Yeah, it's interesting that you think about uh, the problem of automating in, in the factory you know, from the same lens as automating a vehicle going down the road or something moving in 3D in the air. That's great. So just to wrap it up, um, you know, knowing what you know now, do you enjoy entrepreneurship more than research? Would you, would you give yourself advice to make that transition sooner than you did? Or, or, um, or, you, or you, is it more challenging in ways that you're not enjoying? That's a very good question. Um, you know, I think that, um, you know, as far as like giving myself uh, advice on what to do, if I were to look back, I mean, I actually think that I made a transition to entrepreneurship at kind of an optimal time. That was lucky for me, both because I was at the stage where I was like, you know, a fully independent scientist that could, you know, essentially, uh, you know, create my own research program without any, any additional help from the academic community or anything like that. And it happened to be in a very kind of uh, critical time period for AI. Um, but, you know, I think that really deep tech entrepreneurship is kind of a super set of research, right? So, you know, I, I deeply enjoy research, but with research alone, there's kind of a, always kind of a so what aspect to it uh, that wasn't quite enough for me. That was, that was the major challenge, I think, with being an academic that uh, you're always, you know, wondering so what. Um, and so, and the thing is, when I was in academia, I actually only spent about a third of my time, I think, doing research. The rest of the time I spent, you know, doing various like ML and computer science projects or like learning random other things. Um, and, you know, with research, I think it's kind of like research in isolation, I do think is like easier than entrepreneurship in the sense that all you need to do, um, at least with kind of theoretical and to some extent uh, certain applied research is just to write a paper and create a demo and then you're basically done once you release it into the world. You of course just still have to market the work, but I mean, there isn't kind of, uh, yeah, you can just release that information and, and you don't have to worry about uh, you know other aspects right as much. And so, whereas like with entrepreneurship, you know, you can build the world's best technology, but that's really just the beginning. You know, you have to productize it, you have to market it, you have to sell it. And, you know, at the end of the day, that's really what I enjoy the most. Um, it's kind of like turning world-class R&D into something that really works as a product that a lot of people can use um, and hopefully something that's good for the world and that, you know, it can save lives and make people's lives easier. And so, you know, given how broad the requirements are for entrepreneurship, I definitely say I enjoy it more than just doing research. Um, you know, it's pretty much impossible to be bored and uh, research can still play an important role in it. That was our conversation with Vlad Voronyansky, co-founder and CEO of Helm.ai. 
hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to give us five stars in your favorite podcast platform and share with your friends. See you in the next one. And in the meantime, you can always find me at golem.net.